Today's scripture comes from John chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Happy New Year, everyone. Good to see all of you, all of your beautiful faces this uh, New Year's morning. Uh, Would you join me now in prayer? Let's bow our heads together and ask for God's blessing. Father, we thank you so much for another faithful year. Thank you for all that we have gone through this past 2016. Father, in spite of all the struggles, in spite of all the things that we've had to face, the trials, the temptations, the setbacks, we are here, and you have been faithful. The fact that we can stand, be in this place to worship you, and now to sit at your feet to hear your word, oh God, is that not the fruit of your faithfulness in our lives? Father, as we consider what is going on in the world, all the circumstances that could have happened into our lives, yet here we are once again showing your bountiful faithfulness. Lord, I just pray for all of us this morning as we prepare to usher in this new year, as we prepare to begin this year with a fresh head and a fresh heart, a willingness to to live for your glory. Father, we pray that it would carry over throughout this year and in the years to come so that you would find us to be faithful. Father, I just pray for those of us here who may be investigating Christianity, those who feel summoned by something or someone, Lord, I pray that they would find what they are searching for and that they would find it in you, Jesus. Lord, now we ask that you would teach and bless us as we come under your word and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, I am a pastor, duh, right? And I have many, many responsibilities. The kinds of responsibilities that really weigh me down, sometimes keep me up late at night. And one particular responsibility that weighs me down is my responsibility of informing you of good movies that are out there in our culture today. Movies that have been long forgotten, movies that have been overlooked, and yet are hidden gems as far as I am concerned. And so I really take it real seriously in informing you some of our cultural uh, classics that have been minimized and undermined in our culture. And today, I want to expose you to a nice Hollywood hidden gem that came out in the 1990s, a little unknown movie by the name of The Mighty Ducks. You guys see The Mighty Ducks? Of course, none of you have. What, what, What is that? I tell you. It is a classic. After you're done with your little, you know, New Year's family honoring dinner stuff, go on Netflix, rent it tonight. You won't be disappointed. But just to give you a synopsis, just to whet your appetite, The Mighty Duck, starring Emilio Estevez, a fantastic actor as far as I'm concerned. 
he plays the character of Gordon Bombay. And who is Gordon Bombay? Well, Gordon Bombay, high-profile, powerful lawyer who also used to be an amazing hockey player back in junior high, okay? And in the movie, he gets in trouble with the law, which is kind of ironic. He's a lawyer. And as an option to avoid jail time, he is given the opportunity, because the judge finds out he used to play hockey in junior high, he's given the opportunity to coach an inner-city hockey team called the Ducks. Now, of course, uh, Mr. Bombay is very torn because he doesn't really want to do this because he thinks back when he was a hockey player in junior high, and he was actually a fantastic hockey player, and he remembers the championship game in which he completely choked and lost the game, and he's still forever haunted by his coach, this man whom he looked up to as a father figure, just saying the most disappointing words to where he vowed to never pick up a hockey stick again. And yet here, this judge is giving an ultimatum. You either go to jail or you coach the Ducks, right? This is realistic stuff. This really happens in court, I bet, right? And of course, not wanting to go to jail, he says, all right, I'll coach the Ducks. But lo and behold, who does he run into? His old coach and his old team, right? Some of you are hearing this description. You're thinking to yourself, why hasn't anyone told me about this movie? Please, Pastor John, tell me more, tell me more. No, I don't want to ruin the movie for you. But just to tease you a little bit more, I want to give to you a powerful scene in the movie that I still remember to this day. There's a scene where Gordon Bombay is in an intense, heated argument with his former coach. And the coach says these words to him. Can we have that quote up there? He said this to Gordon Bombay. He said, why'd you turn against me, Gordon? For six years, I taught you how to skate. I taught you how to score. I taught you how to go for the W. You could have been one of the greats. And now look at yourself. You're not even a has-been. You're never was. You're not even a has-been. You're never was. All kidding aside, There is nothing more tragic than when a person fails to become the very person they were meant to be, they were destined to be. And as a pastor, one of the things that are so tragic for me to witness that I see far too often is that I see people in the church, even in this church, who have it in them to be great Christians, to be a source of profound blessing in the world, and yet it never happens. They are what I refer to as the never-was Christians. Not the has-beens, but the never-was And the question that I want to ask you as we begin 2017 is this. Are you going to ensure that you don't end up as a never-was Christian? A Christian who had it in them, a Christian who was enabled by the Spirit, equipped by the Word to be a source of tremendous blessing in the world as our charter tells us our mission is, and yet never to have it come to fruition. How do you make sure that you don't avoid the tragedy? How how do you make sure that you avoid the tragedy of becoming the never was Christian? Well, I believe our passage today, John 17, gives us three identifying things, three ways, kind of like our fail-safes to ensure that we don't become the never was Christian. And those three things are the following. Live in the world, come under the word, and do it all in community. Those are the three things I want to share with you this morning. Live in the world, come under the word, and do it all in community. Let's jump right in. First, live in the world. Let's skip down into the middle of our passage and read verses 15 to 18. Can we have our passage up there, please? Follow along as I read verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them 
into the world. These words that we have just read come out of the mouth of Jesus as he is praying to his father on his last night on earth, hours before he is arrested, tortured, beaten, and eventually killed on the cross. And as we're kind of given this wonderful privilege of eavesdropping between this most profound, intimate prayer between God the Father and God the Son, we make some startling realizations. The first realization, which I think is the most startling of all, is this. God wants us, his followers, to live in the world. Let me say that one more time. God wants Christians, he wants you and I, to live in this world. Now, if you're here investigating Christianity, you're probably scratching your head and you're like, well, where else does he expect you to live? In space? On Pluto? No, no, no. Let me explain what I mean. When the Bible refers to the world like it does in this passage, it's not simply referring to the physical planet or the physical realm that we live in, okay? Rather, it refers to the underlying values and beliefs that are very popular in our society that also happen to be the values and beliefs that are contrary to what God wants us to value and what God wants us to believe in. Listen to how the Apostle John describes the world. This is 1 John chapter 2, starting in the 15th verse. We read this. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride and arrogance in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. In reflecting on these very words of the Apostle John, a theologian by the name of David Wells further explains what this concept of the world is. Listen to what he says here. He says this, quote, The world, (coughs) excuse me, the world then, is the way in which our collective life in society and the culture that goes with it is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion. As comfortable as this self-centered reordering of moral and spiritual reality may seem, however, it is inevitably attended by worldly grief because, having displaced God from the center of our personal universe, we made it impossible to care for ourselves as we should. The triumph of the self is always pyrrhic. It amounts to a paradoxical abandonment of the true self, a ruin that begins to cast its shadow over the human spirit long before the day in which God's judgment is heard. End quote. So, putting all this together, what is he saying? What is the scripture saying? Whenever the Bible refers to the world, it's simply another way of referring to everything that's wrong with the world. Sex trafficking, racism, political corruption, all this stuff, drug wars... All of these are manifestations of what the Bible calls the world. And yet here's what's so astounding. Our Jesus, our God, our King commands us to live in that world. Think about it. Our God whom we worship and who we're called to obey, he commands us to live in this broken, corrupted, perverted, superficial, selfish, and violent world. That is what he tells us to do. And this is something that all of us in here, especially for those of you who grew up going to church, really need to grasp. Because one of the tacit lessons that you were taught by your church is that you need to avoid the world at all costs. So, for example, if you're single, you don't go out to the city Friday night with your girlfriends or boyfriends, right? You don't do that. No, you come to church Friday night and you worship and you pray. When you get married, you don't hang out with your non-Christian married friends. You only hang out with your Christian friends so you can let the Christian worldview saturate and marinate your marriage so you have a nice biblical marriage. When you have kids, you don't send them off to public school. You don't send them to PS 169. No, you send them to Geneva Academy, right, a, a private Christian school in the city. Or better, you homeschool them 
teach them yourself. Now, please don't misunderstand with what I'm saying here. I am not saying that these things are inherently wrong and that you shouldn't do them. In fact, I quite openly acknowledge and recognize that sometimes you have to do these things. It is necessary and might be even a matter of obedience for which you are to do these things. But my point is, be careful not to throw the baby out with the bath water as you seek to be faithful to God. Because Jesus makes it clear. If you want to be his follower, if you want to avoid the tragedy of being the never-was Christian, you need to make sure that you are living in the world, not avoiding it at all costs. In fact, when you read other portions of Jesus' teaching, you come to understand why he says what he does. If you look at what he says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, listen to what he says. You, Christians, are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father, listen, as followers of God, we're called to live in this godless world because that is where God is needed the most. Do you understand? We are called to live in a darkened world because it needs God's presence. And the way God's presence is shown to the world is primarily through its people. Go back to verse 14 of Matthew 5. Notice how Jesus describes Christians. What does he refer to us as? He calls us the light of the world. He doesn't say a light of the world. He says the light of the world. Why is that so profound? It's profound because if you look at what it says in John 8, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Wait a minute. Who is the light of the world? Is it Jesus or is it Christians? That definite article, the, implies only one, right? So how can two groups of people, two parties, both be the light? Right? It makes sense if Jesus calls himself the light and he calls us a light, but he says you are the light just as I am the light. How do you reconcile that? The only way is simply that the way Jesus shows he is the light of the world is through his people who shines, that reflects that light as they live in this world, as they live in it as his followers. Okay? That is what it means to live in the world. We are called to cast forth the light of Christ in our lives as we go out into the world so that those who don't know Christ can see who he is as they see us. Now, some of you who are more honest with yourselves are probably thinking, Pastor John, I know you're right, but that's the problem. I try to be the light of Christ to my friends, to my neighbors, to my siblings, to my parents, but quite honestly, they snuff out my light. (laughs) Right? They have seen my problems. They experienced my issues. In fact, they know buttons to push in me right? that just bring out the worst in me. I am terrible when it comes to being a witness for Christ to those that I'm called to be a witness for. So what do I do? Is there any hope for me? Ah, yes, there is. And to explain what that is, let me go to my next point. Come under the word. Now, it is true. Sad to say, it is true that so many people in the church who call themselves Christians... Do not add light into a darkened world, but instead add more darkness in a world that is already dark. In fact, a theologian by the name of Ron Sider wrote an entire book on this very problem. In his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscious, Dr. Ron Sider writes this, quote, To say there is a crisis of disobedience in the evangelical world today is to dangerously understate the problem. 
Born-again Christians divorce at about the same rate as everyone else. Self-centered materialism is seducing evangelicals and rapidly destroying our earlier, slightly more generous giving. Only 6% of born-again Christians tithe. Born-again Christians justify and engage in sexual promiscuity, both premarital and adultery, at astonishing rates. Racism and perhaps physical abuse of wives seem to be worse in evangelical circles than anywhere else. This is scandalous behavior for people who claim to be born again by the Holy Spirit and to enjoy the very presence of the risen Lord in their lives. Perhaps it is not surprising that non-Christians have a negative view of evangelicals. In a recent poll, Barna asked non-Christians about their attitudes towards different groups of Christians. Only 44% have a positive view of Christian clergy. Just 32% have a positive view of born-again Christians. And a mere 22% have a positive view of evangelicals. End quote. It's bad out there, folks. Because it's bad in the church. And as you read these statistics, you can't help but to wonder... How in the world are we going to fulfill this command that Jesus gives us of living in the world without being worldly, right? It just seems an overwhelming task. It seems like we're going to compromise at any opportunity that we have. Is there a way in which we can actually live in the world but not be of it? Well, thankfully, we don't have to take an educated guess because Jesus tells us in our passage how we can do that. Listen again to what he says in verse 17. Let's have verse 17 up there. Jesus says this in 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Here Jesus tells us how we can be in the world, but not of the world. We must be sanctified in the truth. The truth, which he further defines as what? The word of God. God's word. Your word. God's word is truth. In other words, for our case, scripture, the Bible, okay? According to Jesus, the way you can avoid becoming a worldly person is not by avoiding the world, but by being sanctified in the word of God. Or if I could put it this way, of being protected by the word of God and by being transformed by the word of God. All included in that idea is this idea of coming under the word of God. Coming under the word of God. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. We live in a society today that does not have a very positive view of the Bible. More and more, our culture is growing very antagonistic, very hostile to the Bible, to where now majority of people are saying that the Bible should have no place, no source of influence in our society today. Some people will go so far as to say that the Bible is evil, it's dangerous. One prominent atheist that I like to follow sometimes, Bill Maher, went so far as to say that the Bible commands people to be racist. I mean, there's such outlandish statements about the Bible to where many people who've never touched the Bible, never read the Bible, easily hear and watch what other media pundits are saying about the Bible and say, oh, yes, the Bible is evil. But how about this? How about we let the Bible speak for itself? Why don't we go to the Bible and see what the Bible says instead of getting it indirectly based on what other people say who are very biased against us? So let's do that now by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We've got a lot of Bible today, guys. Sorry. Why am I apologizing? I'm not sorry. It's a little joke. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what it says. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Okay, so what did the Bible just say as to why it exists? What is its purpose? Right? Well, Paul, the author of, who wrote these words, says... First of all, 
It teaches us what is true. Second of all, it teaches us what is wrong with us, things that we can't see that is wrong with us, right? But then he says all of those things lead up to its ultimate goal, which is what? Verse 17. For us to be equipped to do good works. Scripture was given to us not so that we can pass all these Bible quizzes, not so that you can show off that you have all this Jeopardy knowledge trivia of the Bible. No, the Bible was given so that you could be transformed to do good works. Now, by phrasing it that way, what is that text assuming? Isn't it assuming there's something bad that necessitates the need for these good works? Doesn't it assume that there's something wrong, therefore we need good works to mitigate against what is bad? Here's the question. What is bad that requires the good works that Scripture provides? Well, Paul says earlier in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, listen to what he says in verse 1. You know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure, pleasure rather than God. Interesting. Paul has just described the last days almost identical to how Jesus describes the world. And because the last days, because the world is the way it is, God gave us the word of God. He gave us the scriptures. Putting all this together, what does it tell us? It tells us this. The only way you can live in this world and not get corrupted by it is if you come under the influence of the word. The only way you can live in this world and not be corrupted by it is that you have to come under the influence of the word. You guys have heard many times, hopefully not too many times, but, man, that person is under the influence of alcohol. What are we saying about that person? We're saying that that person has been dominated by the alcohol to where it changes the way they think, it changes the way they behave, right? That's what it means to come under the influence of a substance, Scripture says that's how the Bible needs to have over you. The Bible needs to have the kind of influence over you to where it changes the way you think. It changes the way that you behave. Because if you don't, you end up like these statistical Christians that Dr. Sider refers to in his book. To where instead of having a healthy marriage, you have a dysfunctional marriage. Instead of having a generous heart to where you care for the poor, you become greedy and you hoard things all to yourself. Instead of developing a very non-judgmental, inclusive spirit, you develop a very arrogant, pompous, tribal spirit. You see? Christian, hear me when I say this. If you want to avoid being a never-was Christian, you have to live in the world. Okay? But if you want to be able to live in the world without getting corrupted by it, you have to come under the word. You have to let the word dominate you. You have to have the word change you and to transform you. You have to be intoxicated by the spirit through the study of the word, which is why Paul says, don't get drunk off of wine, but be filled with the spirit. That is the kind of authority and dominance the word should have over you. Now, some of you are hearing this. You're like, amen, pastor. Amen. I know I need to read the Bible. I need to study the Bible, but... Can I be honest? I try to study the Bible. It's boring. I try to read it within a chapter, maybe a paragraph. I'm falling asleep. Right? I do my best. 
new year, I, I bring out that Bible reading plan. And I start reading Genesis. I get to Abraham. Or I get to Abraham, but I stop before he turns into Abraham, right? It's like, I just, I can't. What do I do? If what you're telling me is true, that the only way I can live in this world and not get corrupted is that I have to engage this word, but this word doesn't engage me. Do I have hope? Yes, you do. And to explain what that hope is, let me go to my final point. Do it all in community. Read again with me verse 11, where Jesus says the following. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Here Jesus tells us the third and final thing we need in order to avoid becoming the never was Christian. What did he say? Verse 11. He says it at the end of it. That they may be one, even as we are one. What's Jesus saying here? You know exactly what he's saying. He's saying that one of the things that we must do as followers of Christ is that we must ensure that you and I, that we are all one. That we are in community. Here's what's so interesting, though. He first speaks of this command, this need to be in community, verse 11. Before he talks about our need to live in the world, verse 15, or to come under the word in verse 17. It's almost as if Jesus is implying that the only way you can properly live in the word, world and the only way that you can properly come under the word is if you first are in community. And guess what? He's absolutely right. That is exactly what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is spot on. Let me explain why. There is a phrase that is thrown around in the church a lot amongst pastors. It's the phrase that goes like this, gather and scatter. The church is to gather and the church is to scatter. What is that phrase? That two phrase describes the two things, the two dynamics that the church is to do as it exists on the earth. The church is to do two things. We are to gather together and we are to scatter together. And I want to explain what those two things are. First, let me first talk about what it means to gather together. Let me ask you, what is the church doing when we gather together? When we come together on a day like this, on a Sunday... And we come and we sit and we worship and we stand and we do all this. Why are we together? Why are we gathered together? Is it so that we can sing uplifting songs so that we feel emotionally better? Is it so that we can fellowship and have stale coffee and cookies? Not stale. Actually, our welcoming team is great, by the way. Is it so that we can have yummy cookies and great coffee and exchange, you know, little, you know, baby clothes, baby toys, or talk about the latest episode of Walking Dead, you know? Is that why we gather together? Oh, why is it that all of our praise team songs have a lot of Bible in it? Why is it our worship service filled with so much Bible? Call to worship is always a psalm. A confession of sin usually comes from the Old Testament prophets. Why is the assurance a part of somewhere in the New Testament epistles? Why are there so much Bible, Bible, ever? There was so much Bible in this sermon. Why is there so much Bible, Bible, Bible? Because the main reason why we gather together is so that we can come under the word, so that we can be taught by the word, that we can be influenced by the word, that we can be dominated by the word. Now, some of you are like, well, okay, the pastor, I have a nice study Bible at home. I have my little internet search engine, right? I have my little Christian app of devotions. Do I really need to come together with other Christians? Do I really need to even listen to you? Do I even really need to sit under preaching? Do I even need to be in a community to come under the word? I can do that on my own. I can have my own personal quiet time, and there I am coming under the word, right? 
wrong. <laughs> wrong. Why? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to what it says. Can we have it up there? For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, even if you don't understand everything that the author is saying here, one thing should be very clear to you, which is what? The Bible is very dangerous. Okay? The Bible is very, very dangerous, which means it needs to be handled with great care, which further means you need someone who is well-trained in the teachings of the Bible, as well as someone who has been taught and trained by the Bible itself. Listen to me. Listen to me. There is no one more dangerous on this earth than someone who mishandles the Word of God. Do you understand me? There is no one more dangerous than someone who mishandles the Word of God, because you know who those people are? Those are the crazy white supremacists who quote Scripture to justify their, their racism. Those are the crazy cult leaders who do crazy things and build compounds and end up on the FBI watch list, okay? All because they have not been properly trained, properly vetted, properly examined when it comes to the Word of God. The Word of God is so dangerous, which is why it is vital that the person who handles it knows exactly what they're doing and has has accountability structures in place so that if they do something stupid with it, there are consequences, I have consequences. If I say anything up here, you guys can report me to my presbytery and I can lose my licensure. Do you guys know that? Maybe I shouldn't have said that, honey. (laughs) Job security is all of a sudden insecure. Listen to what the Apostle James says, chapter 3, verse 1 of his book. Dear brothers, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. The word of God is dangerous. So dangerous that you have to make sure that the person who teaches it knows what they're doing. This is why in order to be a pastor, typically, if it's a healthy church, will always make sure that their pastor has gotten some theological training, has had their character examined and vetted by people like the denomination before they lay hands and authorize them to teach the word of God. Okay? So it's important. That you don't just assume that you yourselves as private individuals can just come under the word. It's like, oh, I've had this amazing teaching where God said in Romans 4 that I'm supposed to marry you, so let's get married, right? No. God forbid. The word of God is dangerous. And it has to be taught by people who are called, gifted, but also held accountable to what they teach. And when you come to a gathered church... That is ensured. The reason why we have pastors, the reason why we have clergy is not to create a, you know, a hierarchy of rank and, and significance in the church. It's not to professionalize the ministry. It's actually there to act as a fail-safe of the inherent dangers that are there and to minimize those dangers whenever the word of God is being taught. Listen, people's families, people's finances, people's eternal future is at stake whenever someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, this is the word of God. The word of God is dangerous, and that danger is minimized when it's in the context of a gathered context where a pastor has been properly vetted and constantly capable of being held accountable to what they teach. That's why we gather, so that ultimately we can come under the word. 
But what about this last item of being scattered? What is this notion of being a scattered church? Well, let me explain what I mean by that. It's quite simple. The scattered church is when God's people leave the gathered setting on a Sunday and from Monday to Saturday live out and apply what they heard from the word of God before a watching world. One more time. The scattered church is when God's people leave the gathered setting on Sunday, and from Monday to Saturday, live out and apply what they heard from God's word before a watching world. What we're doing right now, folks, is to equip you, to empower you, to encourage you so that you can go out and live in the world, that you're equipped with knowledge, that you're given conviction, that you have promises from God giving you assurance so that you can resist temptation, right? But here's the thing. Going out there as scattered individuals is dangerous because what happens here on Sunday and going out as individuals is dangerous. What you need is you gather together and you go out together. This is where so many Christians get it wrong. They think, oh, if I have a good Sunday worship where the preaching is great, where the doctrine is taught, I could just go out and live my Lone Ranger life and not connect with other Christians. No. You have to scatter in the world in community. Okay? You need to be in community together. Listen, when you have a fire of coals, right, and those coals are burning red hot, you take one of those coals out and you leave it on cold concrete, right, and you take a bunch of coals that are red hot and you group them together in a group on that same cold concrete, which is going to stay hotter longer? That group, right? The same is true. Christian, when you go out into the world and you receive the fire of God's spirit and his word, shining through you as you go out into that cold, dark world, the way that you're going to ensure that your heat doesn't dissipate too quickly, that your light doesn't go out too fast, is if you're in a huddled setting, in a communal setting, not when you're just living an isolated life. Listen, if you've been coming to NCF and you come on Sunday, you hear the service, as soon as the benediction is over, you're out and you have no connection, you have no effort of connecting with one another, you are doomed. Because you got the gathered portion right, but you got the scattered portion wrong. This is why we have community groups, by the way. Small group. So many of you think that community group is an optional thing. The reason why I know this is because 70% of you don't participate. Community group is not an option. It's a vital necessity. You know what it is? Community group is, a, is an outpost for you to live out your faith. You know, when soldiers go to war, they need two things. You know what they need? They need a home base, right, where they get the training, where they get their equipment, they get their supplies, and they get their mission. But when they're behind enemy lines, they need something else, right? They need an outpost, which is a place where soldiers can get together, replenish their supplies, be reminded of what their mission is, and be inspired and encouraged to finish the mission and then head back home. That is what community group is. It is that time during the week to where you can regroup, encourage each other, and get the accountability that you need when the trials and temptations of life get too hard, when the seductions of the world seem too alluring, when all of the struggles that you have in your faith can be temporarily eased until you come back together with God's people on the Lord's Day. Community group is so vital, and that is why I'm encouraging you. As a New Year's resolution, as a congregation, let's get involved. Let's gather together. Let's huddle. and Let's keep the heat and the light that we get here to continue on Monday through Saturday. 
so that you can stay a faithful witness to God and not become worldly like so many Christians have become, falling into the tragedy of being the never was Christian. So there you have it. The three fail-safes, the three boundaries that we need to make sure that we stay within. We need to live in the world. We need to come under the word. And we need to do those two things together in community. This is one of the main reasons why Jesus died on the cross for us. Wait, what? What did you say? Yeah. Wait a minute, PJ. I thought Jesus died on the cross so that if we repent of our sins, we go to heaven after we die. Yes. But that's not the only reason Jesus died on the cross. Verse 19. Look at what Jesus says there. What does he say? And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That phrase, I consecrate myself, is another word of him referring to his crucifixion on the cross. For this reason, Father, I have crucified myself on the cross, so that they may be what? Sanctified in the truth. If it is true that Jesus died on the cross solely so that we could go to heaven, you know what he should have said? I consecrate myself so that they may be glorified in heaven. Because when you're in heaven, you don't need to be sanctified. You're already perfect. Sanctification assumes a process where you're becoming more and more and more holy. In heaven, you're 100% holy. Why would Jesus say this unless he would also know that part of why he died on the cross is so that you can grow in holiness now and become his witness, his light in this world. Listen, Jesus didn't just die on the cross so that you could go to heaven after you died. Jesus died on the cross so that you could exhibit what heaven is like through your life before you die as you live in this world. That is what the gospel is also trying to teach us. And so here's my final charge. Do you get that? Do you believe that? Will you live that out? It's my prayer that this year will in some ways be that tipping point for us as a congregation where we finally understand that the implications of the cross go far beyond our death. It begins now before death comes. It begins to where we are a source of blessing in this world, to where no one could ever say of was, you're not even a has-been, you're never was. Let's pray. Father, as we come together, gathered to hear your word, to come under it, hopefully by your spirit being equipped, encouraged, and empowered to live the life you've called us to live, For that is the reason to which your son was consecrated on our behalf. Oh God, help us to truly make that be true in our lives. Father, we want this year to be a year in which we truly gather and scatter together. That we live in this world, not hide away from it. That we engage it, not fight against it in judgment prematurely. But instead, we would go and serve and be a source of blessing. But as we do, that we wouldn't become influenced and corrupted by it. But instead, as we engage the world, we constantly make it into our rhythm of coming under your word, sitting under good preaching, sitting under biblical preaching, so that it would inform us how we should study the Bible on our own. God, we desire for you to change us. We desire for you to make us your reflective light to the world. Father, I just pray for those among us here who may have spent too much of their life squandering away the time that they have been given, chasing after frivolous things, and therefore truly be in the threatened position of being told of being a never-was Christian. God, I just pray for them. I pray that they would reverse course and that they would now follow the path that would lead them to true greatness and fulfillment to their very existence. Father, I also pray for those of us here who are investigating Christianity. Thank you for bringing them here into our community. We pray that we would always make them feel welcome, 
that we'd always invite them into our hearts, into our community, so that ultimately they would see you for who you are in all your beauty and glory. Oh God, would you make this year be a wonderful year that would have profound ramifications for every year to come and for the generations to come. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us, we do not expect you to give at all. But to our members, let's give God his tithes and our offerings.